And so if you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it to Leviticus chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible tonight, there should be one stuck in the back of a pew nearby. Leviticus would be the third book in the Old Testament. And so it's very close to the beginning of your Bible and relatively easy to find. By way of introduction, we've been looking at these five sacrifices, recognizing the distance between us in a Christian church in the United States in the 21st century, and when this was rolled out for the nation of Israel, you know, um, uh, about 1,300 years B.C., uh, we've been recognizing that as foreign as it seems, a sacrificial system, and as distant as it seems, even from Christian worship that roots itself in these same scriptures, that begins in this same place, we've discovered really um, that what these offerings, what these sacrifices did constantly was educate uh, the Jews on the major questions of life. Who is God? What's required of mankind? What's wrong with mankind? How can that be fixed? Um, and as we've gone through these five sacrifices, we've seen some constants. We've seen some consistent pieces that are an aspect of almost every sacrifice. And so we find over and over again that the worshiper cannot come into the presence of God, cannot come into the tabernacle on his own accreditation, on his own standing. But almost over and over again, he has to bring a sacrifice, an animal who's innocent, that he lays his hand on and sees as a substitution for himself, the animal's death for his life. Um, and that has been pretty much a constant, and we'll see the same thing tonight. But we've also discovered in these five sacrifices unique aspects in each one, okay? And these unique aspects have actually widened and broadened the picture of what's wrong with humanity, which the Bible usually uses as shorthand just the word sin. But as we've seen in this series over and over again, understanding the concept of sin uh, is it involves a lot of nuance, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of complexity. And so each of these sacrifices has come from a different angle and shown us a different side. For example, uh, the burnt offering that we looked at first recognized, recognized the fact that if God has created us and created us for a purpose, then our whole is due to him. The burnt offering was consumed in its entirety. And so there's this recognition in life, not only that we... Uh, don't do that, but to some degree we can't do that, that even if that's what we most desire, if we want to live out our purpose as God sees it, there's a constant distraction in our own wants and desires in these things. We saw um, a, a picture of sin in the grain offering of selfishness, of turning in on ourselves and being focused primarily on, on our own wants and needs. We saw uh, with the peace offering uh, that sin involves alienation, that it severs us, it cuts us off, it puts us at a distance from God as well as from other people. And then last week, we looked at the sin offering, and what it drew out um, was, was a metaphor that comes from the world of hygienics, 
of clean and unclean, of uh, that there's something that's defiling or soiling about sin that needs to be set right. It came down to the ideas of guilt and forgiveness. And so really, we've already very much broadened that category, but without tonight, we would be missing one of the New Testament's primary metaphors to talk about the human problem. You see, most of the time, Jesus talks about what he is going to do for the world in his death, burial, and resurrection. He uses an economic metaphor. And so he, he talks about people who have a tremendous debt, and then that debt is forgiven. And it's appropriate that he would use money so often because money is very easily a pointer to what's most important in life. Um, It very quickly gets to the center, the root issues, the non-money issues, if you will. It tells us um, where we put our security and what we most hope in, and it it runs so close to, um, to meeting the needs of human nature that it becomes this great illustration. And we'll see tonight that that's the primary perspective of this final sacrifice, sometimes called the trespass offering um, or, or the, um, the, the, the guilt offering. Um, now, before we read the passage, here's, here's what I want you to notice tonight. Each passage has been very structure-oriented. And so sometimes that structure has been, here's the reasons why you bring the offering, and here's the different types of offerings you bring for those. Or sometimes it's been, uh, here here is what's required of you, and if you can't afford that, then this is what's next, and then here are the causes. There's been a structure each week. And what I want you to notice the structure this week is that the sacrifice on both halves remains the same. A ram, and then restitution is made plus 20%. But it really breaks down into two categories, sins against the holy things and sins against other human beings. And what I want you to draw your attention to, even as we read it, is both the overlap in those two things, that there's no distance between those two things, it's not one offering here and a different offering here, but also how intertwined the two are, okay? Now, Just by way of clarification, when I'm talking about sins against holy things, the idea here is that the average Israelite had responsibilities to God, okay? So they had festivals, and three of them they were required, if they were male and over the age of 13, to attend. And so not attending falls into this category. They had the tithe. 10% of their income every year was to be given back to the Lord to support the ministry of the priests and the poor. And so if that for some reason wasn't given, that's one of the holy things that are talked about here. There was the Sabbath day, right? Every seventh day of the calendar, what we know as Saturday, was reserved for not working. And so that was a holy thing. It was a set-aside day. It was unique of the seven. So there were these unique holidays, there was this unique day every week, there was this unique portion of your income, and then there were the sacrifices, right? These unique gifts that were required and offered to God. In any of these areas, that's what it means to to neglect or sin against or defraud God in the holy things, okay? So with that in mind, what I'd like to do is read the passage. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 14, and press through chapter 6, verse 7, then we'll pray. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. 
He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, he then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he's made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It's a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a manner of deposit or security or through robbery, if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that was found or anything about which he's sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to recuse ourselves in our own opinions, our own judgment of our life on what needs to be done to set things right, that we would recognize that we're always biased towards our own innocence and to a limited sentence, uh, and that we will be able to hear afresh the reality of what sin does and the reality of what you've done about sin. We ask this in your name. Amen. So simply put, once again, two sections here. The first is if you have neglected, and it uses the word unintentionally, and to be clear here, the idea is not just that you forgot, although that would be covered by this. The word is broader. In the book of Numbers, it's contrasted an unintentional sin with a high-handed sin. Here's what the difference is. Okay, unintentional sin is something that you didn't mean to do or didn't want to do or found yourself succumbing to that you now regret. A high-handed sin is something that you did intentionally with, with vigor and maybe even did it directly as an offense to God, okay? You don't find any sacrifices in Leviticus for those types of sins. There are some scholars who argue that those types of sins, high-handed sins, ones that you do intentionally and with vigor, become unintentional when there's conviction and repentance in those things. I think that's a possibility. The emphasis, though, the difference here that it's trying to make when it says unintentional is that this is something that you didn't mean to do against the Lord. And so it may be something that you uh, didn't plan well for, right? So... Uh, so you accidentally spent your tithe and no longer had it to give to the Lord. It may be something where you were, um, you were tempted to do something and so you avoided it because you realized there was an advantage to not doing it. With other people, you'll see that these unintentional sins clearly involve some sort of intent, right? If you lie under oath, that's not an accident. If you rob somebody by oppression, you can't say that you accidentally oppress someone, Right? Uh, and so the idea, once again, is that you weren't steadfast on it, set on it, you're not hard in it and still justifying it, you're in a place where there's guilt and you feel it subjectively, you recognize it, okay? 
But once again, we have two very different categories. And so over here, it's not giving God his due. And over here, it's not giving other people their due. Over here, it's, um, it's, not, uh, it's defrauding God. And over here, it's defrauding people. Over here, it's God's property that's being mishandled. Over here, it's other people's property. Now, what's intriguing is first half or second half, the sacrifice is exactly the same. A ram and restitution. And that restitution is not just a restoring of what was missing, so like repaying back your tithe, but adding on top of that another 20%. Okay? And what's intriguing about this, just, just a couple of things that, that we should notice here. Um, first, we've already seen there's a commonality that it comes down to other people's property. Okay? God's property and other people's property. It comes down to things that aren't yours and what you do with them. And then, another place that, that we see them both involved uh, is that they both require the same sacrifice. And this is interesting, because wouldn't you expect for God there's a ram and for people there's restitution? Right? I think that would make sense, that you come to God offering a sacrifice, because what does restitution mean to God? Right? When you defraud God, whatever that means, paying it back doesn't make God any richer. Right? It's not like he needs it. In fact, we find out that, that this restitution goes into the priest's pockets. And before your injustice alarm or your suspicion goes up, you need to remember that the priesthood of Israel was fully and completely sustained by the other nations of Israel in this way. Okay, And so it was required, and God expressed that requirement in taking care of the priesthood because the priesthood took care of the needs for worship for Israel. Okay, um, But nonetheless, a ram and restitution. And what about people? With people, where you'd expect it just be restitution, right? Some sort of, hey, man, you really need to give that back, and because, because you're trying to seek restitution, it needs to come with 20%, it still requires a ram. There's a very good reason for this, okay? I want you to notice the verbiage here in the opening of both of these sections. Look again at the beginning there in verse 14 of chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, okay, the Lord's things. Now notice when it transitions here in chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. Do you see that? The sin is against God by deceiving his neighbor, okay? And so what's recognized here is both a human aspect, right, the priesthood in the holy things and the people you're defrauding in the people things, as well as sin being directly oriented, directly focused on God. Now, here's why I'm hitting all this stuff. I'll pull back the curtain for a second and tell you where we're going. We have a tendency to not just divide these two things, so there's religious things and secular things, there's how we treat God and how we treat people, but we also have a tendency to overvalue one against the other. Okay. So with that in mind, recognize here recognize here first and foremost that the Bible sees all sin, not just sin in religious stuff, but also sin in secular stuff, how you treat other people as being directly against him. Okay? And there's a couple of reasons why this is the case. The first is because all those other people that you might be defrauding, all of those people that you might be deceiving or oppressing are God's people. 
he made them. And not only that, but they were created, the Bible says, in his image. And so he has, if you will, his fingerprints on them, plans and intentions for them. Not only that, but the Bible recognizes that God doesn't just provide for good people, but God is the provider for all people. And so for you to interfere in that process is to directly, in opposition, become God's enemy. Whereas he is a giver, you are now taking what he has given to another person. And there's another reason. Another reason has to do with who we are. Because the reality is, if you take something that belongs to someone else, you are also making a confession about who God is. You're saying, God is the one who hasn't given me enough, so I must take to watch out for number one. You see that? In taking something else, you inherently are saying, I need this, and built into that, God hasn't given it, so I have to do something about it. Okay? So for all those reasons, the Bible recognizes that even when sin is inherently horizontal and you're not thinking about God at all, it is still ultimately an act against God. This is why when David goes through this account where he steals another man's wife, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then trying to cover up his pregnancy, first tries to get her husband drunk so that he'll go home and sleep with his wife to cover it up, and when that doesn't work, gets him, effectively plots his death and uses his general to get him killed on the front lines. That's why when this all comes to light, when a prophet comes to David and says, hey, we know what you've done, this is a big deal, you need to repent of this, and he does, he writes Psalm 51, and he says in that, against you, God, and against you only have I sinned. And you go, aren't you overplaying your hand a little bit, David? I mean, even if you want to recognize that was a horrible thing to do and God cares about horrible things, can you really say against you only have I sinned? Isn't it clear that he sinned against Bathsheba as well as especially her husband Uriah? And there's a sense where, yes, that's true, and it's recognized, and we see even here that God cares about how you treat other people. But ultimately, at its deep peace, Jesus himself recognized that you cannot split these two things. He said, do you want to understand the laws that was given to Israel? I can do it in summary form. He said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's why in Galatians, Paul most interestingly says, for this fulfills the whole law, love your neighbor as yourself. And you go, wait a minute. Wouldn't you expect him to say, this fulfills the whole law, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he jumps over that hurdle and he knows that the quickest way to discern if you're really being loving, if you're really fulfilling the law, is how you treat other people. This is why John points out, you can say all you want that you love God who you've not seen, and meanwhile, you don't love those around you, right, who you see every day. And he says you can't have it both ways. Love is all or nothing in this sense. See, here's the thing that I find so interesting about this sacrifice. It maintains and holds these two things together as being equal and consistent and united. Okay? Both of them, ram and some sort of... Uh, uh, recompense, some sort of restitution. Both of them. Both of them seen as sins against God. And like I said, the problem for us as human beings is we, we tend to divide these two and then focus on one. For example, we can see this in the complaints of the prophets of Israel. 
They challenged the Israelites for majoring in this first half and making sure to keep their Sabbaths, to keep their fasts, to deliver their tithes while they took advantage of one another, while they oppressed one another. One of the prophets goes as far to say, you think that a fast is just not eating food, but you want to know what a real fast is? A real fast is when you break the bonds of the enslaved. A real fast is when you set free the oppressed. Give me that type of a fast, God says. And if you read the minor prophets, in fact, if you read the whole Bible, you'll always see these two things being held together. And so for some of us, especially if we've grown up in the church, we approach this and we major in the first one and we're very concerned about the things that belong to God. And so we recognize the fact that we belong to God and so our behavior matters. We recognize the fact uh, that God demands holiness and we look at the cleanliness code of, code of the Old Testament and we recognize that Christians are not called to be defiled and what we end up being like is the Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees who tithe mint and cumin, these, these small pieces that they're growing in their home gardens, and neglect, Jesus says, mercy and justice. Right? Even though they're bigger things. He says, you strain a gnat, you won't even eat a gnat because it's unclean, but you'd swallow an entire camel. Right? You have no problem with defrauding and taking advantage of people, being in your best interest, even robbery, but when it comes to God, you're holy and righteous and you want everybody to know it, right? And the reality is we recognize that today as well, don't we? Those people who have somehow reduced their life to such a degree that all that seems to matter for them is the vertical and how they treat other people doesn't seem to enter in. But I want you to recognize tonight that the Bible sees those sins equally and, and paints the whole picture, keeps them together. In fact, I would say one of the things that's the most challenging about the Bible when you read it is all of the ways that we like to divide up life, it doesn't do. And so we have a tendency to side with the poor or the rich, and the Bible doesn't do that. It says there's sins of poverty and there's sins of wealth. There's obedience in wealth and there's obedience in poverty. Even Jesus, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, does this in a single chapter. Right at the middle of chapter 6, he says, you cannot serve God and money. And he talks about money before that, and he talks about it after. But this is the difference. In the beginning, he says, do not store up for yourselves uh, and invest in places where moths will chew it apart, where rust will eat it away, where thieves can break and steal. And in the second half, he says, don't worry about if you have enough to eat. Do you see the transition there? One is for those who have, and the other is those for those who have not. When he says you cannot serve God and mammon, he's not just recognizing that some people put their trust in the money that they have, he's also recognizing that some people put their hope in the money that they don't. Okay? Take Republicans and Democrats. We like to divide the issues in even lines, and the reality is the Bible confronts both sides. It criticizes Republicans for not having enough compassion or um, caring about oppression or justice. And sometimes these religious right leaders, I'm like, have you read two-thirds of your Bible? Right? Have you read all of these portions that say these things are a big deal? And on the other half, there's the, the Democrats who get that side of the issue and resonate with those verses and even hold them over the heads of the Republicans. But then when it comes to sexual behavior and some other things, they go, hey, man, that has nothing to do with other people. It's not hurting anybody. I, you know, this, this is just whatever, right? 
But the Bible confronts both. The prophets are just as comfortable saying adultery is a sin as it is saying oppression is a sin. And the two are held together. So we see this in the Pharisees, and Jesus criticizes them on just these grounds, right? He even says you lay terrible burdens on other people and won't even lift a finger to help them. But there is another crowd. There is another crowd we find that Jesus ministers to, and they're the tax collectors, right? There's this crowd that, um, that are complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And here's... Here's... Here's what I want to say first and foremost, okay? This divide between sacred and secular, let's double back for a second. And we, we did wealth and poverty. We did Republican and democracy. Let's talk about sacred and secular. That there's part of your lives that are God parts or religious parts or holy parts. And then there's the other parts, which are business, which are what happens during your nine to five, which is what takes place in your house, which is what happens in your relationship with other people. That's another divide that cannot be maintained even when we look at the sacrifice. God cares just as much about defrauding the tithes as he does about defrauding your boss. Right? The two are held together. Now, one of the reasons we do that is actually alluded to in this sacrifice, and I think it's hilarious. When he gets to the second half and he's talking about how we take advantage of other people. In fact, let's look through the list very shortly. Notice what it says here. So, chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. Okay, so the idea here is you take a deposit. A deposit by nature is supposed to be returned. And you come up with a scheme not to return it. I know enough of you are renters in the audience to know exactly what this is like, right? It continues on here, and it says, uh, or through robbery. And the word here for robbery is the broadest one. It includes a stick-up late at night, uh, as well as strong forms of oppression, okay? And so loan sharks are in this category. The word is very broad. In fact, it builds on it, and then it says, or he has oppressed his neighbor, meaning that you are taking from him and not giving to him what is worth what you're taking, right? So this would include, uh, include uh, unlivable wages. It would include all these things. It continues on here. And it says, or has found something lost and lied about it. This is, I think, a really intriguing one because it's the one that's most likely to get to your own conscience. Okay? What it recognizes here is when somebody loses something, it's a loss to them. And when you find it, you may see it as a benefit to you, but you're not seeing it as a loss to them. The Bible recognizes here that if you find something, and it doesn't matter if it's a cow or a $20 bill, you should be interested in who lost it and how to get it back to them. Now, obviously, that isn't always possible, and even if you do the right thing and take this random $20 bill to the police station, they're going to wait and see if anybody calls on it, uh, but eventually they're going to give it back to you, and I would imagine that happens 99.9% of the time when it's something so general like a $20 bill. But the principle, the principle is how quick are you to take without thinking of what it costs another person, right? Right? 
I would say that's an area where I am abnormally tested. And not because I want other stuff, but I will tell you it's maybe once every two months that I find a wallet. Seriously. And I'm not talking about you guys here are irresponsible and leave your stuff in the pews. I'm talking about walking around University Village or in the park uh, just all the time. I'm constantly finding people's entire identities and, you know, whatever savings they have in their wallets uh, and figuring out what to do with it. But that's what it's talking about here, and it reduces it even down to that, right? It's not just major forms of injustice and systemic oppression that it's concerned with. It's even the smallest act of just something lost. And he says, and lied about it, okay? Have you ever been in that situation where you found something and you get so attached to it and then you discover it's someone else, right? Then you have a choice to make. And the temptation is to go, oh, actually, I got that as a gift, right? It continues on here, and it says... If he has sinned and realizes his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely. That's the last one here, right? That's, that just reduces it down to any deception that takes advantage of other people. Anytime it's come down to a promise and you've said, I swear that this is not the case and it, it's not true. Okay, and so it's very, very broad here. So here's, here's what I'm pointing out this morning, here's what I want, or this evening, here's what I want you to recognize. That restitution is required in these things. And not just an equal thing. It's not, I just caught, so I'm going to give it back. The, the Jews' law required that that and 20%. In fact, if you're actually going through a court case and you get found guilty, the cost is a lot higher. If you read about it in the book of Deuteronomy, if you get caught stealing, you do return it and extra, but it's not just 20%, okay? So you could look at this practically and say there's an incentive here to come clean, but we all know how easy it is to convince ourselves that nobody will ever find out, right? That's not really what this is about. It's not a way to avoid worse punishment. It's recognizing and feeling the guilt and wanting to restore relationship, okay? That's the goal of what's going on here. Now, on the other hand, as much as those of us who too narrowly define God's responsibility and what God cares about and what righteousness looks like in what happens on Sunday or, or what happens in our devotional time or what we do that is entirely and completely vertical, there's others who it's a tendency to only focus on the other. And I want you to notice tonight, if you're in that crowd, especially if you're not a Christian, that here it still requires a ram, right? It's not just restitution. As, much, as important as restitution is, it's still also you, this is against God. There's this capacity to it, and that goes for the holy things as well. If anything, this passage and this sacrifice paints a picture of human beings as being obligated, does it not? We have obligations, obligations to God and obligations to other people. And the recognition here is when those obligations are mistreated, when they're not taken care of, then you're basically stealing. Now, if I can extend this to its furthest metaphor, Israel's worship was to be a picture of mankind as it was intended, as it was purposed. And the thing that you have to recognize is this is not your life. Right? If the Bible is true, if there really is a God and he created you and that with intention, not, not just as a science project to see if he could do it, but with a plan, then there's obligation there. And trying to remove that and say, the only obligations I have with other people 
is missing this broader reality. And here's the last thing that I want to nail down, okay? It seems interesting, doesn't it, that there's restitution required for God? And I already mentioned there's a practical side of that. When you sin against the holy things, you bring restitution plus 20%, and that's actually taking care of the priests. But there is a reason why it's God-oriented, okay? Here's what it is. It'd be easy to look at this and go, this is just anthropomorphic, right? This is just Israelites uh, treating God or picturing God as if he's a human being. It's not, okay? Anthropomorphic is when you say that God God has ears or that we rest under his hand or, or these types of things, or you talk about his powerful right hand. What this is is personification, okay? Now, you can't personify God. You can personify a teapot right? You could talk in a poem, I guess, about a guy who paid restitution to his teapot. That would be personification. Here, it's not. Why? Because God is a person, okay? What it's recognizing here is that there is a relational obligation on both sides, an obligation to God relationally and an obligation to other people. And all I want to point out to you tonight, if you're not a Christian, um, is, is that if you understand your personal responsibility to other people, at least be open to the reality that if there's a God, you have a personal responsibility there, and in some senses, it's a bigger deal, right? Because the people that you should be taking care of, according to the second sacrifice, may be neighbors, may be family, may even be strangers, might even be people that you'll never meet, and you're just in- interceding on their behalf, right? You... You turn the wallet in and you never see them again. But if God is the one, as it says in the Bible, whom which we will have to deal, right? If, if the role between you is not one of equality like it is with other human beings, all created in the image of God, but, but just that, merely creation. If there really is a creator, then, then these things can't be neglected as being unimportant. You cannot take the Ten Commandments strewn across their two tablets and throw one of them down and say, this one doesn't matter, and hold the other one up high. In fact, they're inherently connected. And it's very impossible, in fact, to do one without the other. And so if you pretend that you can do God's will only focusing on God, doing the vertical, what happens is you neglect the reality of God as creator of everybody else, as provider of everybody else. And so you're not even doing what you attend to do intend to do, and it's the same with the other side. If you focus just on setting right human error and human sin, you will constantly be plagued by the reality of not being able to see the way that your vertical sin, so-called, impact other people, okay? Take sexual sin as an example. We are so swift to think that that doesn't hurt other people, even when it clearly does, right? When an affair leads to divorce, we still want to label that no-fault divorce. We want to come up with a way to get off the hook or to say, well, this is okay because, right? And we come up with all of these excuses and these reasons when in actuality, it clearly hurts someone. And if you look hard enough, if you look close enough, if you look honest enough, you will be surprised how often the things that God condemns that we wouldn't categorize as social actually have tremendous social impact. Just to point to one other thing. If the Bible's right on what is good about the family, then when those things are missing, it's bad for families, okay? And so these two are held together, and what we see is tremendous obligation. Now, the monetary focus of this sacrifice is, is 
right at the heart of it. It's right at the center. Even the ram is spoken of in monetary ways. Listen to what it says here um, in verse... Uh, I really want to talk about this, so I'm going to double back. One more thing. I, I, I want you guys just to notice uh, what it says in verse 3, just as one last little stab here. It says, Or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. What does that sentence mean? It means that this is business as usual, right? It means that the things listed here, robbery and stuff, those things happen all the time, and it recognizes that, okay? And the reason why I bring this out is because, it, once again, there's an easy way for us to justify in, in these things and just say, well, that's just the way the business works. I'll give you an illustration. I went down to California for a conference with Pastor James this month, and we rented a car. I've never done that before. If I had my preference, I'd never do that again. Um, but nonetheless, you know, you have those occasions where you've got to do something like that. So I rented a car, and I walk up to the counter, and I've rented the smallest and the most economy car they offer. And the guy says to me, looking at me and James, he says, you know, the car you chose is really small. I'd really recommend you upgrade. And I'm a penny pincher. It wasn't for any other reason, but I said, no, we're fine. And without skipping a beat, he said, actually, we're out of that model, so I'm going to upgrade you for free. And I thought, oh, man, I just barely avoided that, didn't I? But what would he have told me if I had pressed him on that and said, excuse me, did you really just try and take advantage of me? He would have pointed down the line to all the other car rentals and just said, look, that's the cost of business. That's the way we do things. In fact, how many of you have ever shown up to a car rental and they didn't have the car that you rented and reserved, right? There's part of the philosophy of business that's built into this. Cell phone companies ruined my world because what is the philosophy of business for cell phone companies? They care more about you if you're not a customer than if you are right? Once the contract is in place, they have you. You're, you're effectively a, a cell phone slave, and they don't have to take care of you at all. But they will do anything to get you to put those ball and chains around your, your feet, right? I, I hate this stuff, but it recognizes here that that's human nature, that there's something about us that is constantly looking for advantage and taking it and then explaining it away as business as usual, okay? Now, since that was worth saying, the thing that I wanted to draw your attention to is what it says in verse 18 of chapter 5. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish, that's usual, we've seen that over and over again, out of the flock, that's usual, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. What is, why does it say, or its equivalent? What is the equivalent to a ram from the flock, but another ram, right? We understand what he means if we look a little bit further uh, forward in verse, uh, we have to start halfway through verse 2. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. Okay, and so what it's saying is it's okay to bring the cost of a ram and not just a ram. And even here it says when the ram comes, it needs to be valued. And it doesn't tell us what the value is. And so the idea may be here that once the priest hears what type of defrauding has happened, there's a sliding scale, right? And so a bigger offense means a better ram. Um, but either way, this is the only sacrifice that takes the time to put a monetary value even on the animal sacrifice itself. Okay. Here's what I'm trying to say. The Bible uses it as a primary metaphor to explain the human problem, the idea of debt. That we owed, that God is owed, and that we haven't paid. And not only that, but here it recognizes that just setting things right or, or just take forgiveness to begin with. 
Because if you were with us last week, it talked about forgiveness. And one of the beauties of forgiveness is that it, it uh, annuls the cost of your sin, right? It restores relationship, not because you've set things right, but in spite of the fact that you haven't, right? But here, the cost and the importance for restitution is nailed down. And the recognition here is when forgiveness happens, it's still costly, And although that can be appropriate in some ways, in other ways, it's completely inappropriate. Can you not imagine with me people who would would not pay their tithes and show up a month later and say, I'm sorry, I forgot, please forgive me, right? And they've gotten off for another year. You've encountered it in your own families, right? These ways where it's like the quickest way I can get away with something is just to apologize again, and it just puts me in a posture where I can do it again, okay? Now, more than that, The recognition here is obligation, okay? And so it's not just that we haven't fulfilled our obligation. It's it's in the negative of that. So put it in monetary terms. Imagine all of these instances that we're talking about when you've sinned against God's stuff, which includes yourself in your life, and when you've sinned against other people unintentionally with forgetfulness, all of these things involved, and every time it's not just returning the object but tacking on 20%, Okay? An honest and realistic assessment is putting you tremendously in debt, right? Pretty soon you're in a hole you can't dig yourself out of. That is the reality of sin as the Bible sees it, okay? As being overwhelming, as being something that you can't just set right with an apology, as being something that will be tremendously costly to fix. Now one last thing I want to point out before we move forward. Jesus himself recognizes the importance of restitution. So don't just see this as an Old Testament principle that because Jesus has come, we no longer need to worry about paying people back and then some when things go wrong. Okay? For example, Jesus speaking says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember somebody has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and deal with that first, and then come and worship. Okay? That principle is coming from this passage. In fact, it tells us later on that he cannot make the offering until he's provided the restitution. So it can't even be a promise. He can't bring the ram and say, and I promise to pay him back. No, there's no restoring all things until restitution has been paid. There's another occasion in Jesus' ministry where he's speaking to a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Okay, now there's something you need to understand about tax collectors versus the American IRS. Rome was so smart Better than any capitalist philosopher you've ever heard of, they recognized that the best way to get what they required was to utilize greed. And so this is what they told the tax collectors. First, all the tax collectors that collected for Rome were not Romans, okay? They were nationalists. And so all of the tax collectors in Israel were Jews, which is a lot better, wouldn't you agree, than some centurion knocking on your door? How much does that develop hatred? So they displaced the hatred against their own people, right? But on top of that, they said, this is the amount that you're required to bring to us. Anything beyond that is your profit. And they didn't set a ceiling on it. And so what happened in Israel and all over the Roman Empire is tax collectors got wealthy on deception, on setting the price mark high enough, you know, low enough to be believable, but high enough to make a massive margin. Zacchaeus is one of these. And Zacchaeus is so despised, and he also happens to be short, that when Jesus is walking down a main street, he can't get to the front of the line to see him. And you can imagine what this is like, right? Nobody wants to let Zacchaeus through. 
He's the one who ate me out of house and home, you know, with last year's taxes. So he climbs up in a tree just to get a view of Jesus. And Jesus stops, looks him in the eye and says, Zacchaeus, I'm eating with you today. And everybody in the audience is so upset. They go, really? Him? Right? They don't know what to do with that. By the time the meal is over, Zacchaeus stands up and he's so impressed with who Jesus is and he recognizes what God makes available, he makes two incredible claims. The first, he says, half of my income I'm giving to the poor. Okay? From selfishness to generosity in a single meal. And the second thing he says is, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay them fourfold. Not 20%, 400%. Okay? Now, that's all very interesting, well and good, but what I wanted to point to is what Jesus says. He says, I tell you the truth, speaking to those at the table, salvation has come to this house today. Now, the clear implication is the reason he knows it is because of what Zacchaeus has just said. Now, we need to be clear here, and we'll get there in a second. This is not set things right and then you will be saved. It's something different. But what I want you to recognize is that Jesus lays his finger on that behavior as being evidence of change. Right? So what I'm saying tonight is that it would be completely appropriate for you to walk away from this sermon with a list of people that you need to set things right. And not just give back what you took, but invest in them. Okay. That's the obligation, but that's not where it ends. Okay. Jesus does this really interesting thing when he begins preaching. He constantly cites the Old Testament law, but then when he applies it, he goes way above and beyond it. He takes it to a completely different level, and so sometimes he deepens it, and he says, you know adultery and murder is wrong, but I tell you that lust and hatred are adultery and murder. And so he deepens it down to the heart level. But the other thing he does is he pivots from don't do these bad things against other people to pursue doing good to them intentionally. For example, here we're talking about what to do if you've stolen against someone else. Here's what Jesus says you should do if somebody steals from you. He says, if someone comes to you and takes your cloak, offer them your tunic as well. Okay? So let me put this in modern terms. You get held up while you're walking down an alley late at night, and they ask for your wallet, and you go, you know what? This watch is worth quite a lot of money. Why don't you take it as well? What in the world would Jesus be pointing to here? The recognition is that we should care more about the thief than the theft. Right? Do you see the pivot there? From obligation and the debt we owe from the wrong we've done to actually caring about even those who are indebted against us, who are obligated to us. To, to, this is where the, the Christian idea of forgiveness comes from. This is why we can actually offer forgiveness and say, don't worry about paying me back. Don't worry about that. We can set it all aside and bear the cost ourselves. What happens between A and B? How do we get from the recognition that we are obligated and in debt and that we're constantly uh, letting people down and defrauding both God and other people to this area where we're moving in the other direction? The first thing you have to see is that it's embedded right here. Okay. Let me put it in a phrase that was helpful for me as I was thinking about it. When you go from taking something to restoring it and then some, you're now investing in that relationship. Do you see that? The pivot is already here, even if it's just in seed form. The recognition is that sin breaks relationship. And the truth is, even if they don't know you stole it, 
it still breaks the relationship, right? Because that cloud, you're well aware that you stole it, and so now you treat them differently. You keep them at a distance. You're constantly worried that if you let them in, you're going to slip up and they'll find out, right? You know, so you don't invite them over for dinner or whatever. That reality is true nonetheless. But doing this doesn't just set it right. It says, not only that, but this relationship is something I care about and want to invest in. Okay? Honestly, it's the same thing with the holy things. When the Israelite who neglected his tithe comes back and gives not 10%, but 12%, he's not just seeking to set things right, but to invest in his relationship with God. The entire sacrificial system is oriented around the person who wants to approach God. Right? This isn't some sort of thing where somebody's rapping on doors and going, okay, tell me all your sins and I'll tell you what you owe God. No, these are people who are coming of their own free will because of the guilt that they feel because they want to put things right. Okay? And so this is an investment in personal relationship. Recognizing not just that things have been broken, but that your trajectory in breaking those things has been away from relationship. Okay? But there's a major, major turn that changes everything. This is the beginning. I'll tell you where it ends. You see, the prophets, the same ones who hammered both of these sides of the issue, God and people, love the Lord, love your neighbor, sins against God and sins against people, morality proper and ethics and behavior, all of these things. These same prophets, one of them in Isaiah uh, specifically, comes and he tells us about what God is going to do. In the same way that these sacrifices we're told in the New Testament are pointing forward, Isaiah stands in the same line and he points at the same place. And he talks about the coming one, the servant of Israel. He talks about the Messiah when he gets here and what he's going to do. And it is a mind-blowing passage, okay? Because it is the most explicit that says when the Messiah comes, he will suffer. When the Messiah comes, he will bleed. When the Messiah comes, he will die. And that's relatively uncommon. It's not unknown in the Old Testament, but one of the most explicit places is Isaiah 53. In fact, Isaiah 53, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus is born, is such a great defense of the reality of Jesus as Messiah that for years the Jews actually taught their own people that Isaiah 53 was a Christian addition to their scriptures until we unearthed the Dead Sea Scrolls and we found it in its entirety predating the birth of Jesus. Change the game. But here's what's interesting. Isaiah puts this death, this bleeding, this thing in sacrificial language. And do you know which sacrifice he chooses? The guilt offering. Not the burnt offering. Not even the sin offering, which would have been the obvious one. The guilt offering. And so it's appropriate for, for us to ask, why this one? What's important about this one? Listen to how he puts it. This is in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Now, as I said, this passage is uh, tremendously intriguing as pointing forward to what the Messiah, what the coming one, what Jesus would be like. And so if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. And you should really start in chapter 52, verse 13, and then read all the way to the end of 53. But tonight, I just have time to draw your attention to one verse, which is verse 10. In fact, let, just for context, read verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, innocent. Now read verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
Now, all you have to do is read the Psalms, and that will make you scratch your head. Who is the one that God desires to crush? The wicked. And here's one, no deceit, perfect standing before God, and yet God is desirous to crush him. Why? What does it say in the next verse? He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, or literally, when he makes himself a guilt offering. Now, here's what's so mind-blowing about this. What do we see in Leviticus? The person who's done the crime needs to submit restitution. Now, here God says, here's what I'm doing in the coming Messiah. I'm going to pay the bill. I'm going to make restitution. I'm going to go above and beyond what's required and make sure it's all taken care of. That's why in this chapter it says that our sins he laid upon his shoulders. And if you'll remember me here, from a Christian perspective, Jesus is God. And so there's an equivalency here, not just God laying sins on his son's shoulders and making him bear the punishment, but God himself making human shoulders for himself to bear the sin. This is the transition. What we see in the gospel is that God recognizes that restitution is appropriate and required for the restoration of relationship and provides it himself. Here's what I'm telling you tonight. God wants to be in relationship with you so much, so much that he's willing to foot the bill. Recognizing that you're the problem and he's not. Recognizing that your debt is ever amassing uh, and you're not bringing anything to the table to fix it. Recognizing that your general trajectory is one of deeper and deeper problems. What it says here is that he became the guilt offering. He cleared the way to restore that relationship and bore the whole cost, restitution and all. That's why it pivots in the New Testament and suddenly it says, hey, you know what? You should really love your enemies, right? It doesn't just say, accept restitution from those who want it. It says, pursue those who have sinned against you and offer them forgiveness. It says, don't just be concerned about not harming people, but actually invest in their best interests. This is what Paul says in the book of, of Ephesians. He says, let a thief no longer steal, but instead, instead make a good living so that he can have something to give those in need. Do you hear the transition? It's not, hey man, get a job instead of taking advantage of people. It's get a job so you can take care of people. Where does that come from? It comes from this reality that God so graciously and so radically did what was necessary, did what we didn't deserve. And so it changes the trajectory. What we recognize in the death of Jesus Christ is that love and relationship is ultimate. And God was more than willing to pay the cost to make that happen, even when it was our cost to bear. And so now, we don't just make restitution when we screw up, although that's true, right? And you should do so. We actually pursue above and beyond that. Investing in undeserving relationships. Putting more into people. Offering free forgiveness and cleaning the slate for other people. But it all begins back here in Leviticus with the recognition of obligation. See, Paul says that love fulfills the law. And he's not creating a new law and saying, the new standard is love. And so if you just love, then everything will be okay. No, he's recognizing love naturally transcends the law. It goes above and beyond it. What I'm saying effectively, and you'll see this if you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
is that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, as he says, but to fulfill it. And in one sense, that's because he took it on his own shoulders and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserved in our place. But it's also because he provided some great, tremendous reality that takes us beyond the law, makes us more interested in others than ourselves, makes us not obligants, but investors when it comes to loving other people. And so if you get anything out of this sermon tonight, yes, there is probably a list of people you need to get in touch with and places where you should make restitution. But above and beyond that, relationship. Not just restoring with God, but investing in it. That's why Paul can say, off your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul recognizes that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and complete and there needs not be another one, but he still says the reasonable response is to offer everything you are to that. And with other people as well. The glory of Christianity is we have a means to, do, to deal with the most heinous sin, to restore the most broken of relationships. And I'll be honest, there's a part of this you can't do. Right? You can't make a relationship with a person who doesn't want it. And you can't make someone forgive you. But ultimately, as we saw, it's not just about them. When we sin against other people, we've also sinned against the Lord. And so you can, as an offering to the Lord, take the right steps in relationship, and it's still a beautiful thing. But the guilt offering is the recognition that we are obligated to the God who made us and to the other people he made alongside of us. That we haven't kept those obligations. That God, not obligated to do so, willingly and freely paid the cost of that in his own flesh, and then calls us to something greater, something deeper, something more profound, and something more beautiful. Love. Not just law, but love. Let's pray. Father, there's a sense where every act of sin against another is a denial of their personhood. It makes them an object to be used. Uh, It makes them an obstacle to be removed. It forgets the fact that they are a person, and what people are for is for relationship. So I pray, Lord, that you would reorient our hearts to find tremendous beauty, wealth, and value in our relationships with you and with people. I ask that you teach us, Lord, how to care more about the thief than the theft. That you would teach us how to forgive freely and find joy in erasing the debts that are held up against us because we've been so freely forgiven. And I ask, Lord, that you would develop in our hearts and that it would grow into our lives in the way that we talk, into the decisions we make, uh, a just sprouting, ever-welling up, overabounding love for you and for one another, for neighbors, for strangers, and even for our enemies. Because in that, we reflect the God who is love. I pray that you'd help us in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.